The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gayed, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Samantha LaDuke, who I haven't seen in a long time. You and I, Samantha, had a brief interaction many, many years ago. It's, I'm glad that uh, we're reconnecting here. Uh, introduce yourself here for the audience, Samantha. Who are you? How did you get involved in interest in markets? And what are you doing with LaDuke Trading? All righty. And yes, that interaction was actually in New York City, a CTA conference. Oh, my goodness. That was uh, probably... Seven, eight years ago, I was... Uh, it was a long time ago. I had a lot more hair on my head back then. <laughs> well, nice nice to uh, to talk shop with you again. Yes, I'm Samantha LaDuke. I'm founder of LaDukeTrading.com. And I very much just kind of share my insights on volatility and money rotation. I like to predict price action across global equities. So currencies, commodities, interest rates. I'm not alone in what I do. I actually... Um, kind of fashion myself a macro to micro analyst, educator, and trader, but I have a full trading desk, so I'm not alone. I have a, a wonderful macro advisor head, Craig Shapiro, who is actually a longtime client and hedge fund manager, and he helps our institutional clients kind of operationalize how to manage and position for sector rotation mostly, but also in help retail clients that are interested in kind of interpreting the uh, the macro events of the day. I do the same, but I do it in front of a live trading room where I have live trading room moderators and a whole desk of experts that just basically share full-time their analysis. I have literally nine contributors from futures to commodities. I mean, we're talking pure oil traders to advanced option traders. And these are folks that have been with me for a while. So I can definitely testify to their excellent analysis and customer care. And long story short, we have basically this service for retail that and institutional across our Discord product, my fishing club product, and our macro advisor edge institutional product. So thank you very much for this invite to uh, talk about market views. I love the uh, that all over your site. You mentioned fishing. Let's go fishing, and and you know, which of course goes to that whole idea of you know, give a man a fish, you know, he'll eat for a day. Show him how to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Talk through what motivates you to try to educate others, because I think a lot of people in this field they think about it only from the perspective of their own P and L. But it takes a certain type of personality to want to actually educate others so that they that grow their own accounts. Well, I think it's very much this kind of mom edict in me that I really want to help folks not position just bullish or bearish, but risk reward. So I really am looking at risk events and where to be risk aware. But my specialty is in timing volatility as it relates to an asset class, not VIX per se. So really using intermarket analysis for which you and I have a lot in common there. I mean, that is my secret sauce as it relates to timing inflection points, right? So what I want to do is take this solid kind of generalist view from macro to intermarket to technical, throw in some quant and some fundamental and some sentiment and create this understanding of the market in my language. And then what I help clients do is understand the risk reward of a particular position and not just 
on a you know particular stock, but on a particular time frame. So the education that I do is not in teaching options or you know teaching macro. I do a lot of client you know engagement that's custom in my live trading room. But this is very much focused on helping them understand why something is moving, where I see it moving because of my kind of ability to, I think anyway, scan and synthesize market moving news. So that's a short duration, right? And how it impacts most definitely swing and trend positions. They're very different timeframes. And I heard you say one time, so much infighting in Twitter would be resolved if folks would just qualify their timeframes because everyone defines the time frame differently. It's a personal, it, it, it's, it's a personal experience, right? My chase is, you know, a, a few days, swing a few weeks, trend a few months, but everyone has a different definition of time frame. So what I'm trying to do is basically identify and help clients manage their risk reward depending on their time frame. A lot of the infighting would also, I think, be resolved if people actually knew what the hell they were talking about. I mean, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But but the, the point about time frame and volatility, I think, is is interesting to to think through here because I'm with you, right? So I always make it a point that risk on, risk off is about conditions favoring lower volatility in the case of risk on or conditions favoring higher volatility in the case of risk off. And that you can argue really there's only you know asset classes that benefit from high volatility or asset classes that benefit from low volatility. Everything else is variations of the same concept. You and I also both know that there's this concept called volatility clustering, meaning that we can argue about volatility over the long term, but the reality is volatility does tend to be very focused over very short-term timeframes, independent of asset class. What are some of the things that you look at that help you identify if the conditions are there for heightened volatility risk in whatever asset class that you're looking at? Oh, that's a basically what I do. So even as it relates to volatility as a tool, you I've got a chart that I'm going to show a little bit after that shows how we're in a clustering time frame, which means we can have these periods of outsized volatility when a particular indicator flatlines. It can it can occur for a, a year or two. And then we go into this kind of you know bull market mode where volatility is greatly suppressed. And, you know, all and obviously we have a regime change right now, which is Fed hiking. And that's not the only macro reason. But we definitely have, in my opinion, hit that threshold where I can see some outsized volatility coming in as an instrument, which, of course, means volatility reprices everything. And timing, that's very, very key. But in the meantime, you know, waiting for that type of trigger, which is event driven, right, very much so. I can basically time tops much better than bottoms because I can see distribution occurring, whether it be in the index, a sector, what have you, which is very, very helpful for timing tops. But typically the market will bottom on an event, right? There's there's typically a Fed intervention that comes into play. And uh, right now we don't have that, but we have other sentiment, you know, macro intervention, which is Bank of Japan, I'm going to contend. We're going to get into that, I hope. But the interim of waiting for volatility to do something totally wicked awesome, I will focus on sector rotation. Now, I know you do a lot of that as well. It's really kernel of the corn as far as I'm concerned. Sector rotation is the reason for positioning in swings that allow for covering short or like in this recent momentum thrust that we've had for sure off of the January 5th, I would say, low. And this is really, it's still in play. So I actually want to put this chart that I have in drafts out into the world and see if that will resonate. Did I do it already? If, yeah, if you want to tweet that out, then I could share it at the, uh, at the top of the nest. Exactly. All right. Yep. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. 
Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. And by the way, I do I, I, I do want to I do want to hit this regime change point is really important. And I only mentioned that because the I'll share the chart in a second. I, I'm of the mindset that you're going to see more volatility thrusts. So you're going to have these melt ups, you know, or whatever term you want to use. I use that term and then very large declines and then melt ups. And I say that only because if you look at in particular what happened with quantitative easing three, the distribution of returns for U.S. markets became much more like a normal distribution. You tend to have what's known as, as you know, fat tails in market dynamics on the left side, meaning you tend to have larger declines you know, than you'd have advances. What was unusual in the zero interest rate policy in QE3 environment was that you didn't really have any kind of real left tail type of movement, which made all this momentum flow into the U.S. Now, to your point about rising rates and regime shift, to me, the end of quantitative easing is a really, really big freaking deal. Right. In terms of more opportunities for volatility to pop up. No, there's no question. In fact, I'm trying to grab that chart right now, which is separate from what I just sent. What I just sent is basically how I'm helping clients identify when we're going to have (laughs) call it a short duration regime change, which is value to growth and growth to value. So based on also net buying and selling, which is that distribution that I happen to follow very, very closely for clients that triggered the only bear, the only bullish chart that I had was a net buying indicator on January 5th, 4th, excuse me, Wednesday, before a big surge higher in SPX and the rest on the 6th, which was Friday. And then Monday came in and we just obviously took off to the races, especially with a, a much weaker CPI. And I had warned that that was a deflation impulse coming in. Dollar would continue to pull, pull down with yields and that would help you know, buoy all the stock and, you know, pent up demand, if you will, in pushing this uh, Santa Claus rally up from December into January. So we had that. So this to me is a rotation. And I've, I've put that chart, a bunch of charts actually, on the Twitter feed that you kind of see where I started on January 5th and worked all the way up to, you know, this past Friday, how this rotation is still in play. But big picture, if you look at it, you pull out, you zoom out, not on a daily time frame, but a weekly and a monthly time frame, you can clearly see it's but a blip in a rollover from growth to value. So just let's back up a little bit. I had a very, very strong call back in November, December, January. So we're talking January 2022. And I posted that and I shared my letter, you know, my predictions for the year that NASDAQ would underperform. The 13-year outperformance would end and growth to value rotation would continue, continue because I had been very bullish from summer 2020 where I had this things over paper theme. So fast forward, we obviously had a very strong push higher in energy and also in value cyclical plays. We had a crash in bonds and stocks with especially NASDAQ pulling back. That was all, honestly, intermarket analysis charts that kind of gave me that confidence that we we're going to have volatility come into the, into the space, but it was also macro, right? So we also had that regime change. They removed the word transitory, referring to inflation back in November of 2021. And then boom, oil shot up from 65, crude shot up from 65 to 130 by March, which was also, you know, that call that I had. All of this really is the macro and the intermarket trying to, and technical, trying to time when volatility is going to enter an asset class. And I think there's no difference of basically using the the macro as a narrative, which right now is, yes, we have a regime change, but the market's still very excited right now, right? And now they're trying to pull forward this narrative of a pivot pause by the Fed. I think it's very different. So first and foremost, I think it's a a, a growth rotation, as my charts, you know, indicate. But I also think it's but a blip. And we still have one major leg down in tech before it's safe. And that was basically my 2023 predictions, which was, you know, is it safe? And I, I still don't think that we have the lows in for the market. But right now, the bulls are getting very excited on this rotation, thinking it's going to stick. And I don't. I think it's going to be a, a fake breakout and a fast failure. So I'm actually aligned 
very much true that. And it's true if you just look at a very simple, you know, Russell growth, IWF divided by Russell value, right? In the last three weeks, it's been about growth. It's been about tech. It's the oversold balance everybody's been hoping for and waiting for. I think it's still kind of early, right? Meaning that it can last for maybe a few more weeks. But I'm, I'm with you. There's probably still another wave lower. And part of my thesis this year relates to this idea that I think at some point you're going to have some kind of credit event. And that you reference it yourself, sort of the event is, you know, the bottom when the Fed kicks in or does something. And I say that because now it's becoming more clear to me as I do this research, a lot of the new bond issuances roll over next year, right? All the cheap money, all the cheap debt from COVID rolls over in 2024. If markets are a discounting mechanism, they would see that in advance, nine months usually on average, which means you probably do have some kind of you know another wave lower. Now the question becomes if you have another volatility spike in equities, how does this one play out? I'm of the mindset that that becomes more like a classic, you know, risk-off deflation yes. pulse, longer duration treasuries kick back in. But that to me is I think where the next real play is going to be beyond this drift higher that we're seeing. So right now this rotation to higher in momentum, which I honestly just see as a rotation higher of short duration nature. We are not done going down in tech. Again, this is my intermarket analysis. I could be wrong. So far, it's worked really, really well to follow it from a, you know, a zoom in to a zoom out perspective. I'm sticking with it. It is, however, very dangerous still for treasuries, in my humble opinion, because even though we're having this deflationary impulse, right, yields pulling back with the dollar, and I still see lower for dollar, even if we have a wee bounce, I can still see Dixie heading down, you know, breaking 100, overshooting to 98 before circling back up. And all of that right now is seemingly bullish risk assets. This is in large part because of Bank of Japan. So I, I have to go to this event risk on Bank of Japan because I know this is more focused on the Fed, but I think the 25 basis point for you know next week is pretty much baked, right? Another one and then pause. And it's going to be interesting because I think that pause that the Fed will talk about will time potentially with Kuroda's exit. So I don't think there's going to be any change in yield curve control announced by Kuroda over in Bank of Japan. But as you know, there's a big, big correlation between yen and gold and bonds, right? So when Bank of Japan came in on October 21st, and it just happened to be live in my trading room, so it had hit a particular key level, um, happened to record it live, so I, that's also on my YouTube channel. But the, the fact is, it hit a level, and then immediately Friday during regular trading hours, when folks in Japan were sleeping, they came in with a massive yen intervention to basically backstop their bonds. So that continued. So the dollar yen carry trade has fallen from, you know, $152.51 all the way down to this kind of 127 area. And I contend that's not done. So this pullback timed beautifully with a dollar pullback, right? And as the dollar pulled back, gold also got lit with the yen. Bonds stopped going down. Stocks were, you know, also supported, although we haven't had a massive FOMO rally. We've definitely had that safety to go back in risk assets for momentum. And it didn't hurt energy anything at all. Energy's been chopping sideways, big sideways chop in big picture also with the indices of truth be told, right? So I think that that Bank of Japan event, it, October 21st was a big deal and it triggered this short covering, big picture and pulled down the, the dollar and the yields and has continued with their widening of their yield curve back in early December. And now Kuroda is going to leave. And then we've got March 20th. Inflation in Japan is, you know, tricking, tr trickling higher, but it's really about can they pass along higher prices? Can they actually increase wages. Right now, there's been no incentive by corporations to do that. But that's what's next, right? And higher wage demand and rising wages and declining productivity is the enemy of bonds. That was my major thesis in October 2021, posted that and said, this is it. You know, we are going to have rising wages. That's the sticky part of inflation that's very lagging. And forget about products, goods. Let's just focus on wages. Wait, and my did a, a post that was entitled "Deflation of Wages," you know, ended with COVID, and that was basically 
how the Bond crash came to be. I, be- I believed very firmly that it was the enemy of Bonds, and sure enough, that came to fruition. So I'm seeing what's, you know, what's going to happen in March with the 20th around there. So until then, I still don't see a lot of drama in the market. I don't see, I see a lot of choppiness and sideways and everyone's getting all bowled up. And I just see this as a a short-term momentum thrust that will likely turn into a fake breakout and a fast failure. And treasuries, unfortunately, as strong as they may be for, you know, better risk reward because you're getting paid to wait in some cases, I don't think that they're out, they're going to outperform. I think they're, I have a particular level in ZB, which is a T-bond futures of about 135. And I think they're going to get rejected solidly. So I still have lower stocks and bonds as my baseline bet for this year, but timing is key. Yeah, and I would add that I'm actually with you on the short-term dynamics for treasuries during this period because it's like, oddly enough, the market's acting reflationary, right? Which is an, a word that's weird to say in the context of high inflation, but you look at discretionary against staples, right? That's leading after a very severe decline. Utilities weak, that's consistent with reflationary behavior. Even lumber, even home builders, right? all the stuff, at least on the margin, very short-term, yeah. is a little thing, reflation. So that should, and I, I'll tell you candidly, I hope that happens, right? If the move higher in equities were to persist, okay, so you capture some of that. As treasuries are selling off, then you load up in treasuries for hopefully the return of the flight to safety trade. You can have a pretty big year if you happen to get those two big trades right. But to your point, the timing is really tricky. The timing is tricky, especially with the March event risk by the Bank of Japan coming in and also that whole concept, which I'm I'm behind anyway, of, you know, by the rumor of a pith, of a of a pause sell the news of a pause. So I think those are going to kind of come together in the spring. And you know markets, right? They're going to front run that. They're going to smell it and start to front run, run, front run it. They may not see it yet. Market doesn't know it yet. But there's so much bullish. I love watching sentiment. I really, really do, right? We now have this, quote unquote, deflationary impulse from the CPI print that was much weaker, 7.1 to 6.5 headline. And I don't I don't even care because (laughs) the sector rotation matters to me even more. But the whole concept that we would have this softening was baked in and then that pulled down yields and dollar to basically support this momentum rotation. But I'm still of the opinion that we're going to have this peter out. Earnings recession is not done. Peak valuations that already triggered. I've got a chart that I put in in the in the Twitter so you can you can show that one which is my gap SPX that was very very much and by the way it's not a monthly right so that's very much a trend tool i do all three time frames running a live trading room lots of chasing right my bread and butter is swing trading and th- that's a few weeks that can last a few months but trend posi- trends are my friend i want to know the direction of these sectors so that i can then you know cherry pick the stocks inside that are strongest relative strength and that's my whole working backwards from the goal and i really do see this potential of just petering out and i don't have any evidence yet even in my you know earnings assessment which i posted like i said on the monthly it shows gap SPX rolling over, peak valuations clearly in Q1 of 2022, so a year ago. Peak earnings were June 23rd. I wrote about that. And now as EPS estimates, they are falling faster than sales. Profit margins are compressed. And as, as healthy as many companies seem to be holding up in their equity prices, underneath the surface, that one chart shows me very clearly that as a bear, I do not give up. It has turned over, it has rolled over, and the risk reward is to the downside in this repricing of equities based on earnings weakness. So I put out a, um, a tweet, a post where I said, if you're bullish on energy over tech, you have to be bullish on value over growth. And if you're bullish on value over growth, you have to be bullish on emerging markets over US. Now, I'll tell you that the this emerging market theme for me is a big one from a multi-cycle perspective. Now that QE is done, now that zero interest rate policy is done, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if we're maybe, at least I hope, and this is my bias, admittedly, if we're maybe in a cycle where there's a lot more momentum potential outside of 
developed markets because that's been an interesting parallel to the post-tech wreck from 2000 to 2002 and then into the great financial crisis. If you look at 2000, 2007, energy was the leader. Value was outperforming growth and emerging markets were the place to be. So I'm going to go back to what drives my macro to micro, and that's event driven. So in the case of Bank of Japan coming in on 1021, October 21st, 2022, it was very much a focus of mine that they had the dollar yen had reached a, a very strong yearly you know resistance level and looking for an excuse for it to pull back and then boom same day they did that yen intervention and it was very clear that it was going to come down and that was going to you know put some weakness in the dollar and it did and the weakness in the dollar put a bid in emerging markets and everything else and immediately after like I'm talking two three days maybe not even China okay. Everyone was saying China's uninvestable, but China came in and literally ordered their state banks to stem the sale of stock, the, the selling of stocks and buy up stocks, right? And then they did this a massive amount of fiscal stimulus and you know support for the real estate developers that were obviously belly up. And it went very clearly, okay, it's time to chase. K-Web and the Chinese ADRs and the rest. And I know lots of fundamentalists will point to the fact that, you know, they were just cheap, but it was really a macro-driven event that lit a fire under the short covering folks who had been banking, printing dollars by shorting anything China-related. And it's also interesting in a sentiment standpoint where you heard everybody talking on Bloomberg and the rest where, okay, China's uninvestable. And then boom, right in the kisser, they literally turned and went up 100% because China ordered state banks to stem the sell of, <laughs> stem the sale of, of stocks selling off. So in the same way, the gilts, right, did their event and then got backstopped. And I just think that this dollar pullback of size, what is it, 13% in two months, is the reason for the season in um, all kinds of things, right? In in emerging markets, as well as uh, China, Japan, the whole thing. Just look at the DAX. It looks beautiful. You know, it just looks absolutely mwah, beautiful. It's a dollar trade. So what happens when the dollar reverse is higher? Right now, it's not a threat. So it has stabilized. If you are a dollar bear, then you are very excited about opportunities abroad. It, quite simply, you're also excited about the greater earning retention power of, of mega cap companies, corporations having tailwind instead of headwind like, like it was. So you're bullish stocks, you're bullish countries, equities globally. I don't feel that way. <laughs> I feel like in the same way, China's going to turn the corner again, and they're going to take those profits off the table, and we will have a distribution event, a sold-to-you event. So I don't consider this a trend reversal. I consider this a very durable swing trade higher because the dollar has pulled back. That's it. It's completely dollar motivated, and when the dollar stabilizes and starts to move higher again, that will be a very good signal to short global equities. Until then, th the trend is your friend, and it's obviously weakened. Just uh, for the remaining minutes or so, everyone, please make sure you follow Samantha LaDuke. You can check out uh, her service at LaDukeTrading.com. I'll retweet her pin tweet on that. Just if you're curious on that, I encourage everybody to do that. Follow her. Again, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions, don't hesitate to click on that bottom left micro request button. And I will, again, have this as an edited podcast under that lead lag live banner. Let's go for a question. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I'm going to give it, you know, best attempts to answer this because I'm not a, a quant, but I follow quants. And this zero DTE is definitely, I call it destination till empty. 
is given a bad rep on retail, but it's actually been proven that it's very much hedge funds. So they're they're getting more sneaky. And that means they are driving the boat as it relates to the zero DTE mania. But I also we've been very we've been very clearly told by Powell that we're going to have a soft landing. So come hell or high water, they're making sure that we don't have these, I believe this is, you know, manipulation, conspiracy theory, if you want to call it, but I, I'm not really, I'm talking about this balancing act of growth, right? Where we have 50 year low unemployment and still falling unemployment claims against higher interest rate regime. So it's very much that balance, I believe, also. And then add to it the fact that we really have had a massive amount of dollar swaps that have been taking place between central banks. And that's something else that I I track along with Fed liquidity. And the Fed liquidity is, you know, when it comes into the market, it's stealth QE, and it's very supportive of markets. And that's actually one of the things that Craig follows very, very closely. And I've created some indicators around it as well. That is that that three-legged approach, right? You've got the, the zero DTE, which is very much volatility suppressing. You've got the Fed, which is very volatility suppressing. They have ensured a soft landing. So if they're going to be credible, they're going to make, they're going to try their, their dang, their darndest. And then you've got basically this liquidity that comes into the market. And that's something that I really, really follow on every time frame. Like clients know that I have my charts up an hour, a day, and a week. And I'm looking at net liquidity, buying and selling all day long. Like I want to know if it is supported for hire or when it turns, it's a sold to you and be careful right? And then if it, if, if it continues, press, press, press. So for me, that's volatility suppression at its finest, um, all three reasons. And I put up a chart which shows that volatility regime, however, can last a while, right? So the kind of red shaded areas are in fact an area where the, the 65 EMA kind of flat lines a little bit. And that's where we have some wild swaths of volatility. Let's put it that way. And it can last a few years. And then we go into this typically event-driven quantitative easing, which obviously gets the bulls raging and running, and they do. And then we go into this sideways digestion period again. I have it kind of shown in that 2011, 2012, and then again in 2014, 16 where we had that kind of oil industry recession big time happening under the surface. Markets went sideways. We had some good-sized volatility bouts in there. So, you know, fast forward to 2018, 19, repo madness, and then COVID. Oh, me, oh, my. Well, guess what? We're right back squarely into the, I would say, 2023-24 um, regime, where we're going to have some big you know, drama met with great buying opportunities. So while it's working its way out, I don't see the volatility the same way you do, which is maybe just on this shorter time frame. I look at it going, no, we we are definitely going to have some volatility in the next year. The market doesn't know it yet. The timing, however, is right, is key. So I hope that sort of kind of gave you like my overarching view of as long as we have buying net liquidity, Fed liquidity and net liquidity, which are kind of akin, then there is no volatility. Once that starts to get distributed underneath the surface, that's when volatility enters. And last comment on that, my main focus is volatility, but not in the sense of VIX. It's sector rotation that I'm always, always sizing up, trying to figure out where money is moving, because there's always a bull market, always a bull market. And I have, you know, 100 ETFs, and I'm looking at where the strength and weakness is every day, every week, every month. And I'm looking at the leaders and where are the leaders, according to my trend, my best trend, you know, scans and analysis. They're in sectors, and they stay strong, and they stay strong, and they stay strong, and I stay with those. But when, in lieu of sector rotation, that's when we have volatility, when nothing rotates, when money no longer rotates from growth to value or, you know, I don't care what, Bitcoin to KWeb, you know, to, you know what I mean, to energy. When we don't have sector rotation, that's when volatility absolutely rears its ugly head. And by the way, that's also on the flight to safety 
tends to kick back in, which again is what failed last year. It's funny as you as you're talking about volatility suppression. Uh, so I'm going to argue that volatility suppression is ultimately credit spread manipulation, ah. because right, and I say that because I keep going back to people think that the Fed steps in when the S and P goes down heavy. It's not about the S and P; they're getting confused. It's ultimately about credit spreads, and the link there is that the VIX, when it spikes, tends to result in high yield really selling off. The differential between junk debt and AAA widens because default risk gets priced in. Yes, yes. So. Given where rates are, right, and given that you're probably going to be in this kind of age of turbulence, which is my belief, you're going to have more and more of these credit spread, you know, widening than contracting, widening than contracting. And that should, again, coincide with volatility spikes. And only if it gets to be really extreme, then would the Fed step in to try to reliquify. But I think that's the really sort of key dynamic. Listen, I'm of the mindset that at some point this year, you're, there's going to be an opportunity to get junk debt at like 10, 15% yield. Which would be after a real spread blowout, right? Which would be like exactly to your point, Samantha, you know, of of another wave lower in equities. There's going to be some really good yield opportunities, but you got to be tactical and wait for those. Yes, correct. And right now we are being paid to wait, aren't we? 100%. Let's go for a question. This is one that I've had to really, really spend some time on. So what a really great question. So early on in November of 2020, I had this, you know, very strong theme before that, that, you know, yields were done going down, bonds were done going up. That was August of 2020. And so it was a really nice move in energy through 2021. It outperformed. It was great where, you know, a lot of the, the growth stuff just petered out or fell hard, right? from that February 2021. But what was interesting to me is oil did not get up and get going. And I have to go back before I go forward because that was my whole thesis back in March of 2021, oil as the inflation hedge. And if and if you have followed me for a while, you know I, I do this in capital letters. Right? <laughs> like it's, It was a really big, big, big theme of mine. But oil didn't take off until the Fed removed the word transitory from inflation back in November 21. And then it went boom, right? right? Literally doubled. So since then, we know about suppression of oil. Talk about volatility suppression. I don't think there's been a, a, a equal, an equally coordinated effort to suppress the price of oil. But um, oil was basically my inflation hedge. The energy plays did extremely well, oil and that gas energy plays, as my trend trades for clients. But oil, obviously, once it broke 93 on a weekly, it just continued down. And we had, of course, the SPR releases, which helped to suppress the price of oil, no question, into the midterm elections. Everyone was extremely curious if that was going to pop up like a daisy after the elections. It did not. It has stayed suppressed. And we can go through and kind of look at the reasons China coming online, there are a host, a good dozen reasons, but the the gist of what I see in oil right now is it's sideways chop. I still have a lower level that has not been tagged yet. So it's a little, you know, the market doesn't shake you out. It'll wear you out. I still see $65 at 65 cents monthly support that I've been waiting for crude to tag and it still hasn't gotten there. Nat gas has has reached my levels, but uh, crude most definitely hasn't. And it's very tough to trade. There's just not a lot of benefit right now from a directional trade in oil, especially with this short-term kind of deflationary impulse with yields getting pulled down. The lower dollar has done nothing to support that commodity. It's done wonders for copper and gold, right? So I would say that, and I go over it every single day with clients, where's oil today? <laughs> and it's really just going sideways. So I wish that there was, you know, a, a better answer for you, but I am still waiting for a low to come in for WTIC uh, around $65. And I think it will get very strongly defended. Until then, it's an exercise in frustration. I do not think it is easily tradable except on a very short duration Oil and gas companies are a lot easier to trade, and I'm an options trader, so I prefer that anyway. But I, I, I wish I had better news for you on you know the oil trade, but I think it is right now very low risk reward to trade oil bullish despite yields falling. And my whole thesis 
literally since summer of 2020 has been oil as an inflation hedge. Well, right now we're having a deflationary impulse, just doesn't matter. That's an excellent question because literally I remember opening up my trading room and the very first, the very first chart I looked at was UNH, <laughs> you know, and I'm like this, this space of the safety, right? And defense and healthcare plans in particular look absolutely ready to roll over. And if that is the case, then that's going to give more credence to a potential momentum oversold short covering rally right? And I, again, do not believe tech is done going down, but these quote unquote bear market rallies can be vicious. <laughs> and literally UNH and Humana and Cigna, they rolled over on point, on key. So yes, there was this rotation out of, and I wouldn't call it necessarily a rotation as much as profit taking. So I really expected actually profit taking to kick in for XLE you know, given we're talking about XLV, because so many are holding out in the outperforming healthcare plans and devices and, and other defensives, and of course, defense contractors, and then boom, the selling picked up in earnest. So that's what I mean by th they come in very quick. They are long and strong until the new year. That's the January effect. They take their profits off the table. I really thought it was also going to include XLE. I even talked about it on a CNBC interview on December 1st going XLE and the diamonds, I think are going to pull back. They're extremely, you know, they're cooked. And I think we need a little bit of a profit taking first part of January. Well, we got a little bit in the diamonds, but we got nothing in, uh, in the oil and in, in the gas sector. So I think this is weakness in the healthcare group. But as you know, it has been stronger than bear's breath and I do have concern that we have broken out of the trend on the short term because they see this, you know, the grass is greener over with all these mega cap tech plays being, quote unquote, cheap. So we'll see how far they go. But right now they have broken trend. And it surprised me how quickly they did the profit taking in this space. But I don't think this momentum rally is going to have much legs. So I'll be watching this closely to see if it gets supported in the uh, healthcare plans. Because they are trend following plays and very widely held, I have very particular levels that they need to break and close below for me to really give up the ghost on that space. I think right now it's a pullback because we're having a momentum short covering rally that has lasted since December, basically January 5th. So it's too early to tell, in all honesty. I need another month. I need another few weeks at least to get through this month. The, the COVID sell-off was actually my really, really strong kind of claim to fame because I saw that happening underneath the surface for a good month. So there are divergences that I follow in my intermarket analysis and when something is really, like right now, the breadth is much, much stronger than, uh, or the, the movement, if you will, than the price action. That's a divergence. It will converge. So in general, I am expecting the breadth to weaken, not price to catch up. I'm talking across the board. So this is just a short covering rally. COVID, that crash, which was very much for me, very, very clear. Clients can attest. I did this every single day. I could see nothing but selling. And March 10th, everyone's like, buy this, buy this. Nope. I saw nothing but selling. We did not stop selling until the Fed came in on that, you know, post-March quarterly options expiration period. End of point. We, we had solid selling all the way down. So everything got sold, right? And even gold and dollar, they were, it was collateral damage at one point. So everything was hit. That's what I mean by in lieu of sector rotation, there will be volatility. So right now, the path that we've had is a gentle <laughs> bear market. Even if NASDAQ 35%, it was still one of those situations where it was all contained. It was all very controlled. We didn't really have forced selling. It was a beautiful sell-off, actually. So now people 
I feel like a controlled demolition. So now I don't think we're going to be so lucky in 2023. I think there is going to be this, we always have it, right? FOMO and then boom, right when the bulls get trapped, the bears come in. And same has happened with the bears and the bulls come in. The CPI releases have been outsized and they have trapped many a bear. But the Fed then comes in and taps that whole thing down and says, now, wait a minute, it's higher for longer. So I don't look at the same things, I guess, that that everyone does. I'm really looking at my intermarket and my secret sauce to identify buying and selling. We're clearly in buying mode. There's no question. It, it started coming in, you know, Bank of Japan, if you want to go back that far, in October with a dollar pullback, and we've continued, and there's still net buying but I think this is where it gets extended, exhausted, starts to peter out and roll back over. So that's the timing that I'm trying to literally pinpoint for clients live <laughs> and uh, across indices and sectors. But I don't see this. I, I don't know if you're asking me, what do we buy after we sell off? I don't know your time frame. But what I do for, for clients is I look from a trend standpoint every single week at the relative strength leaders and I spy the sectors they're in and obviously spend a lot of time digging into those sectors and in the, and those particular leaders. And then I pick my favorites and those become trend positions. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend. I think right now the most surprising for me is gold. And let me, I know we're going to talk about that anyway, right, Michael? But I, I have to tell you that when GLD was, you know, 154, and there's lots of reasons to be excited about gold in this in this new regime, but I was, you know, as an inflation or a deflation hedge, whatever, it's risen despite real yields going higher. But the, the long and the short of it was, I, like, this is just a swing. It's just a swing, 164, 174, but that's it. And then it filled the gap last week, all the way up to 180. And we're talking about GLD, but, you know, continuous contract, you can you can take a look. It was extremely strong. And I think we have the potential, obviously, for a little pullback, but it's going to get it's going to get strongly defended. If if anything, I was shocked to find last week after what, three months of tracking this from the Bank of Japan, recommending this long with yen and, and bonds that it has triggered a trend trade. I'm very particular about my trend trades right? Swings, they last, but then they have this, you know, they, they, they resumption of the trend, right? They can go right back into a, into a protracted downtrend. I think that's what's going to happen with a lot of these over these momentum plays. But gold has actually triggered a trend long, exactly when I think it's going to pull back for a short duration. But I think we're going to see strangely, and I hate to say this because I think it's getting a little consensus, and I hope that this pullback is fierce, actually, and chases all those late bulls in gold out. But I think uh, the next pullback in gold is going to be very strongly defended and move very strongly higher. And I am not a gold bug. And I have not had any interest in gold for a while. So that's, that's actually my biggest surprise of late is getting behind the, uh, the thesis that trend in gold will likely have legs this year. Let's go to the final question. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Samantha LaDuke here on Twitter and check out her service as well. So first I want to share with you, I'm tweeting right now my dollar views literally, or I should say technically. So I'm always going to look at the macro like you just summarized really well, right? But I also see it as a dance. And I also see it as very much event-driven with macro events, as I mentioned and highlighted the Bank of Japan. So technically speaking, I can, and I showed you four charts that I just posted on Twitter. One is of a daily, right? We've, we've come down and broken some trend line. We're, you know, hovering right above $100. We can, we're still weak sauce though. I am not bullish unless it can get back above 106. What's going to drive it there? That's most likely not going to come until probably March timeframe. I showed even, you know, pulling out in time, more indicators. We're right back down, as you mentioned, right? We've come back down to that kind of 2016 high. We overshot it, in fact. It was a very sharp pullback, again, since the Bank of Japan intervention in October. So I'm not seeing this done. If I pull back even more into a kind of multi-year approach, you can see the cycles, right? 
Gold tends to kind of cycle higher over five years and then dump and then chop sideways violently and then move higher and then dump and then chop sideways violently, move higher. And then now we're in this sideways digestion. It really, this you know dollar milkshake, which by the way, I'm a fan, is not right now. We have to base and stabilize before we can move higher and much higher. So for, I don't know if it kind of is more of a technical review, more of an intermarket review, but I would say that the dollar movements, depending on your time frame, right? Short duration, it's it's lower dollar is considered a tailwind for equities, so it's risk on and vice versa. Recently, it's been very much in tune with the rising yen, and yen outperformance was not expected on anyone's bingo card this year, except for me. I'm that's my number one macro mover for this year. Actually, is higher yen. And then I think this is going to be this is going to be played with for a little bit because there's so much at stake, right? We we just have massive energy costs that have also come down tremendously, allowing the growth narrative to pick up speed in large part because of a falling dollar. And they work hard to keep that, you know. <laughs> I I think they they keep that under control. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but and it probably doesn't, but. My view is short-term, bearish, but I still think we have a higher leg in the dollar with yields that is yet to come. The the timing is key. I think that's a good place to end this space. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Samantha LaDuke. And by the way, let me just say real quick, given that I'm a little bit under the weather, folks, I'm not leaving Twitter. I'm just not going to be doing as many market commentary posts during the day. The insanity that happened the last several days was like the last straw for me. Please do me a favor, folks. Support good people, support people like Samantha, support people that try to be out there with integrity, with real names. There's so much bullshit and nonsense on Twitter, on FinTwit, where people follow people that you don't can't even verify who they are, or their knowledge base, and you certainly don't know if they're in the arena fighting. Okay. In my case, I'm a entrepreneur. Samantha's out there as well. She's got a great service. Follow people that have skin in the game. Whether you agree or disagree with them, at least you know that they're working hard and trying to deal with the unknowable tomorrow, the same constant everyone here has to deal with. With that said, everybody enjoy the rest of your night. I'm going to be doing a number of spaces this week. Hopefully I'll see you then. Thank you, Samantha. Really do appreciate it. Stay healthy and thank you so much. I appreciate it, everyone. Happy trading. Stay safe. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.